0: Welcome to Going Viral, a podcast all about the viruses that spread infectious disease. I'm Mark Honigsbaum, a medical historian specialising in pandemics. And in this episode, I'll be asking, how are you feeling? For in this age of social media, it's not only viruses that go viral, but also our emotions. And to judge by my Twitter feed, this week there's been a lot of anger about everything from the deaths of old people in care homes to the lack of protection nurses and other frontline health workers to help you make sense of these and other emotions today i'll be talking to thomas dixon professor of history at queen mary university of london and the author of weeping britannia portrait of a nation in tears thomas heads the interdisciplinary research project living with feelings and has been exploring how our emotional expressions change over time using the yougov tracker he'll also be giving us a snapshot of the current emotion buzz terms and what they say about the state of Britain's mental health. And to help us probe feelings on the opposite side of the Atlantic, my daughter Olivia is speaking to her cousin Nancy Lublin, the CEO of Crisis Text Line, a free 24-7 support service that uses text messaging to connect people in crisis with trained counsellors.
1: Crisis Text Line is 24-7 mental health support at your fingertips, so that even in danger and hardship, and when you feel alone, you're not really alone. We're always there for you.
0: But first up, Thomas Dixon. Let's just start with the check-in, Thomas. So how are you feeling today?
2: I'm feeling not too bad. I had a whole day yesterday of homeschooling my two boys, who are 10 and 7, and there was quite a lot of home and not a huge amount of schooling. You can imagine it's quite demanding. So I'm feeling some relief today because my wife is on homeschool duty and I am having a lovely time talking about emotions on a podcast. How are you feeling, Mark?
0: So I've been having some disturbing dreams, particularly at the start of this whole episode. There was one weekend in particular just before the lockdown proper, where I had this very vivid, what I call almost a nightmare, where I had this sense of impending dread. And it reminded me very much of the sort of feelings that were reported at the height of the Spanish influenza pandemic in October of 1918. I'll just quote very quickly a letter from a social historian and a pacifist called Caroline Payne who lived in Hampstead at the time, and she kept a notebook. And as she travelled round in October, she noted, Influenza very bad in places. Depression on faces very marked in trains and trams. People very full of sad cases of death from influenza. A great sense of dread about everything. And I know you've studied anxiety and dread. Does that have any resonances for you?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think one of the differences about about our situation right now is that we're most of us not mixing very much at all. And in my case, not at all. I've not been anywhere for four weeks. So I don't get a sense of mixing with people who are feeling sad except for online. I think one obvious thing about our current situation is it's sort of a distilled kind of purified version of existential dread for us all every day of the week, because all the things that we normally do to distract ourselves from dread and mortality and meaninglessness have been taken away. We don't commute to work. We're not busy, busy, busy about our everyday lives. We can't go out to the pub or go to the theatre or go to the cinema. So we're left just in this heightened state, I think, for for some of us, of dread. But certainly it's a very altered state and one in which mortality, obviously, is prominent in people's minds.
0: You've recently been working on A History of Anger. And the other emotion that's come really prominent in the last week, particularly these pictures from America of these very angry Trump supporters going out on the streets and demanding an end to social distancing. And I suppose we've seen a similar sort of anger here about the government's lack of planning. What do you make of that? What's driving this anger?
2: I personally feel quite out of step with that. And for some years now, I've been thinking about the history and philosophy of rage and fury and ire. And I don't buy into it really as a admirable or useful emotional state, but I realize I'm in a minority from that point of view. But I do feel that, you know, the evidence from the United States is kind of on my side on this one. You know, the people aggressively abusing and and shouting at each other doesn't seem the way forward. So I, I consider myself a sort of modern Seneca advocating stoicism and calm. And I do think that in the current situation, which is likely to last for some time, a lot of us are spending a lot of time online. Emotions are the enemy online, as far as I'm concerned. One of the key things that drives misinformation is everyone's tendency to get emotionally riled up and to retweet stuff with disgust and outrage, some of which is reliable and much of which is not reliable. So again, I feel there's quite a lot to be said against indulging our rage online at the moment.
0: So just to to clarify on that point, you don't really subscribe to, um, I think, is it the Aristotelian idea of uh, justified rage when there's an injustice?
2: I mean, I don't want to come across as sort of a smug, know-it-all sort of saint. Uh, I mean, I have a terrible temper. This is the main reason I'm against anger is because I hate it so much in myself. But you know, in theory, I, no, I'm not with with, with Aristotle. I'm with Seneca. I don't think there's anything going for it at all, really.
0: So, Thomas, I, I know you've been following the YouGov mood tracker. Can you? Tell us what it's telling us about how people are feeling.
2: This is going to be an absolute godsend for future historians of emotion. So they've got this amazing data tracking the mood of the nation measured once a week. Going back to last year, the moods of the nation. So people are asked, broadly speaking, which of the following best describe your mood and or how you have been feeling in the last week? And please select all that apply. And they're given the choice, I won't read them all out, but things like happy, sad, energetic, inspired, frustrated, stressed, and so on. So for every week that this has run, until the 13th of March this year, the predominant emotion has been happiness, reaching its peak around Christmas, which I found quite surprising. But <laughs> it's peak around Christmas at 61% of people saying the last week, I've mainly been feeling happy. But normally, it's around 50%. So, in normal times, the way that the the nation's mood tends to look is happy, then stressed, then frustrated, and then content. So, that pretty much summarizes Britain's life happy and stressed. But under COVID, that changes, as you might imagine, very dramatically. Uh, And in the first couple of weeks of lockdown, by far the most common emotion was stress, and happiness went way down. In the last couple of weeks, the top emotion has been frustration. So, 43% of us are frustrated, and the second most, common mood is boredom. So we've gone from being a happy and stressed nation to a frustrated and bored
0: nation. How is boredom viewed at other historical periods and times. The first
2: uh, recorded instance of the word boredom in English is in Bleak House by Charles Dickens. And the word bored, meaning what we mean by bored, kind of suffering from ennui and lack of energy and interest, that only goes back a little bit before Dickens. And it's found in one of the works of Byron, who describes the world being divided into the bores and the bored. It's quite a good summary of of, uh, humanity. Anyway, so that's only a 19th century invention, boredom. The thing that I was quite surprised about in this data was seeing that although fear went up, being scared went up very dramatically at the time of the lockdown, that's now gone right back down again. And and people seem not to be feeling scared. In the last week or two, they're feeling bored, but... Fairly happy.
0: I suppose the frustration reflects people's concern and anxiety about when we're actually going to return to normal, whatever that might mean.
2: Judging from other polls that have been done, there does seem to be quite a split between people who are finding quite a lot of positives in the lockdown and people who find that thought completely incomprehensible. (laughs) I suspect there may be a division there between older people whose lives might not have been so drastically altered by the lockdown and younger people whose whole life has been suddenly halted.
0: Can we just talk very briefly about isolation and the challenge of maintaining connections when we're forced to socially distance and keep a physical distance between people we might otherwise be able to hug?
2: That is really interesting. And just a final word on the on the mood tracker before we talk about that more generally. Quite surprisingly, that has shown no real change in levels of loneliness. People reporting uh, that has stayed at about 20%, which it Is its normal kind of levels. That's quite interesting. And I know there was an RSA poll, uh, which is the one that showed a fair amount of kind of positive feelings about the lockdown. And that one included a decent proportion of people saying they felt more connected now than they had done before the lockdown. And I can kind of identify with that. And I've been having a lot of Zoom conversation with friends and family, probably more than I would see them in normal life. Uh, so again, there's kind of there's two sides to it. But I do think this is absolutely fundamental. And I think in terms of the longer term impact this will have for us all on our lives and on our emotional health, if you like, that is obviously the most fundamental thing is the, is the complete cutting off of physical contact with, with with friends and family. And we probably don't yet know quite what the impact
0: will be. So the, the data is showing that these feelings of loneliness are basically stay pretty much where they were before. But anecdotally, we, we know that we're all compensating and finding ways to continue these emotional connections, but in a different way using technology. I think maybe we should move this on to your research into the, the role that different technologies have always played in mediating friendships and are finding ways to connect
2: Absolutely. And I, I do think, in fact, it was. I'm listening to you, Mark, on the radio that got me thinking about this a couple of weeks ago. You were talking about the, just the etymology of the word contagion, which means contact, touching together. And that is so fundamental. And that idea of contact and connection is at the heart both of the current crisis and the contagiousness of the virus, but also is the fundamental concept in friendship and human connection. E.M. Forster famously had this motto, only connect, which he thought was the most important thing that we've got this sort of paradox that the virus is is doing exactly the same thing that we want our emotions to be doing but can't for me i think yeah but one of the big ideas here is about renaissance friendship so i looked a few years ago for a radio 4 series at 500 years of friendship and i started to think about the different types of friendship that there are and i divided it up into three which i called kinship utility and affection. Uh, So kinship is family. So if you go back hundreds of years, there's a very strong overlap between family and friends. Um, And utility is what it sounds like. It's friends who are of use to you, making yourself useful to each other. And the third one, the emotional kind of friendship, It's the one that is completely dominant in our own thinking about friendship in the present, but really is a kind of inheritance from Renaissance intellectuals like Erasmus and Thomas More. It's a rather elite view of friendship, that it's something detached from family, detached from utility, and it's this pure emotional thing. But that's what we're all wanting these days. Mm -hmm. And In fact, that is quite a non-embodied concept of friendship. So in theory, it can be communicated via Zoom, you know, without being able to hug people. And... Since the Renaissance, there have been all sorts of different technologies that have mediated friendship. So if you are Erasmus, then you stay in touch with your friends by writing very clever letters to them in Latin, full of clever Latin jokes. And, you know, coming into the modern period, then we have the the telegram, the telegraph, and the telephone. And obviously, the words themselves all tell us what they're about. Tele, meaning at a distance. And the telephone in particular is, is a really interesting case of that.
0: One of the cruelest aspects of COVID, of course, is that because of how contagious it is and and dangerous it is at the hour of death families are denied contact with their loved ones on covid wards and we've already had some really moving accounts of fathers or mothers texting their children just before you know they slip into a coma or in some cases having a conversation with them and that's really in many cases the only way you can have contact with someone who's isolated and I think you you've found some interesting accounts of the introduction of telephones in the late Victorian period.
2: When we were making the series, I spoke with a historian of science called Michael Kay, who gave me some wonderful examples from his PhD research. And I was really amazed to discover that telephones were in use in the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties. Well, actually, to be honest, given my ignorance, I didn't know that telephones were in use in the eighteen seventies or eighties at all. But the other thing that was completely news to me was that medical uses were amongst the earliest uses of the telephone for exactly that reason that you were just alluding to in those very heartbreaking cases where someone is so infectious that it's not possible for people to see them physically. So I'll just read you now one of these sources that Michael Kay shared with me. It's from the medical journal The Lancet, uh, and it's recommending the installation of the telephone in private houses. This is in December 1885. All of us must have felt the heart-aching anxiety of longing to hear the voice of a dear friend when ourselves either lying in, or the friend being confined to, a bed of sickness. The comfort of hearing the voice with all its intonations in such a case does not need to be described in words. To be really and generally serviceable, telephones for use in cases of sickness should be simple in their construction and cheap But it is indispensable that they should be so made as to communicate the faintest whispering sound so as to require no sort of effort on the part of the speaker. And they should be provided with mouth and earpieces so light as to admit of their being held by a weak and trembling hand. So that's a really touching evocation from the 1880s of someone so weak on their deathbed but because of a telephone, being able to, to to utter their last words to a loved one.
0: I I was also struck by the testimonial letter that was published, I think, in 1880, and it was written by a lady superintendent at a hospital for sick children in Manchester.
2: Yeah, so the, the hospital for sick children in Manchester, they'd installed their telephone the previous year, and this lady superintendent says the recently installed telephone is of the greatest value in connection with the fever ward, enabling me to always be in communication without risk of infection. I expected it would be useful, but I had no idea that it would prove the real comfort that it is. Already, we begin to wonder how we managed before, and we would not be without it again on any account. That phrase, to be in communication without risk of infection, summarizes it perfectly, doesn't it? You want to be in contact, but you can't be in contact, uh, and the telephone comes to your rescue.
0: Yeah, I mean, it has such resonance because we shouldn't forget that, uh, of course, it's not only members of the public who have been denied this contact, but increasingly nurses and doctors on the front line at these COVID wards. So like you, I'm at home. You know, I have my family around me. I don't think I'm at particular risk as I would be, say, if I was moving around and uh, if I was actually at a hospital. But of course, we're hearing every day these most awful Examples of nurses dying, and we're hearing from you know their loved ones, from their sons, uh, their daughters, their wives, and of this awful grief that people are going through. There's a tendency or a risk that we just become immune to it because we it's so distant from us, and we we can't process it all the time. But a couple of weeks ago, when I came down on Monday morning to start my working week, as it were. And the first thing I heard was this young man, the son of a urologist called Abdul Chowdhury, who had died just a few days before. And it was both inspiring in that his son was giving this wonderful testimonial to his father, but also at the same time, he was sharing how just shortly before his father had died, he had issued an appeal on Facebook pleading for the government to provide more PPE to NHS workers. I was just suddenly overwhelmed with emotion and I'm not ashamed to say that I burst into tears and it was those sort of tears that I actually didn't want them to stop because I thought I need to express this emotion I need to get out this this grief because you know it's important and grief for me is a gateway that it tells you what direction you should your anger should be directed to in a way I don't know if you felt any of that or have there's been moments where you've become tearful
2: yeah i'm generally quite a tearful person but i i i've i've not been especially in the in the last few weeks actually those stories are really really painful and heartbreaking and i suppose i feel that a bit probably i am slightly in denial about quite a lot of that because It puts me in mind, actually, of that the famous passage at the end of Middlemarch by George Eliot, it's about the fact that if one was aware of all the suffering that went on in the world, it would just be unbearable. It'd be like being able to hear the heartbeat of every squirrel and, and every blade of grass as it's growing. And the amount of suffering that's going on in our country and around the world is so awful that I think I feel a bit like that, that. If I started to become aware of it, it might be too, too painful. But I have become tearful about slightly random other things, which I suspect is, you know, just this swirl of emotions mm-hmm. that, that, that can be triggered in different ways. In fact, in my case, it was when it was just a social media post which a lot of people had responded to. And it was kind of incoherent emotion, but it was just suddenly a feeling of great gratitude and relief to be connected with other people mm-hmm. via social media in a positive way that made me become tearful when I wasn't expecting it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a really good point, because it's not all doom and gloom, is it? I mean, there have been moments of, of joy, particularly, I suppose, the most obvious one being around this phenomenon of clapping for carers, or seeing the small acts of kindness when people go out of their way to you know, help someone else who's struggling.
2: And we're all of us moved in very different ways, I think, by different things, aren't we? So, for example, some people were very moved by Boris Johnson's speech about the NHS after he came out of hospital. And a lot of the kind of people that I follow on Twitter were, let's say, not so impressed.
0: (laughs) You made an interesting point. He used this term love. Tell us why you thought that was significant.
2: I I may be wrong, but I don't think Boris Johnson has used the word love in a kind of political context like that before. It seemed to me to signal a change of tone. The fact that he made a point of talking about the nationalities of two nurses who were not from the UK who had helped him and then ended up by talking about love. I was trying to be optimistic and thinking that maybe this was a sign of a a positive change of tone. The majority reaction that I saw was much more sceptical and was suggesting that he thought the NHS was powered by love and not by funding. So... We all have different feelings about these things. But I'd noticed in the Tory leadership campaign last year, Rory Stewart had used the word love a couple of times and made, it made quite a point of doing so, saying a word we don't hear very much is love. And I wondered if Boris Johnson was trying to follow that lead.
0: So if Britons are feeling bored, frustrated and isolated, how are Americans feeling? To find out, I asked my daughter, Olivia, to call her cousin for a chat.
3: My name's Olivia and I'm here today with Nancy Lublin, who's my cousin. She's also the CEO and founder of Crisis Text Line in the US. First, Nancy, would you be able to tell me a bit about, and just for our listeners, what Crisis Text Line does? In particular, how it uses data to really inform and support young people?
1: Sure. We've been operating in the US since 2013. We've processed about 150 million messages. And we also operate in the UK, but the name there is Shout. And we collect, store, and analyze the data in real time. And so that we can spot trends and help academic research and journalists and things like that.
3: So Nancy, I really wanted to just have a chat with you about kind of what you've been seeing over the last kind of few weeks and months around how this is really impacting people's mental health and in particular young people in the US.
1: The first wave of volume that we saw was anxiety. You saw it in China, you saw it in Italy, but it wasn't really real until it roosted at home. And that first wave of what we saw was anxiety. And anxiety about the symptoms, like do I have it, fever, I mean all different kinds of things. The words panic, freaked out, scared, and that makes sense. It's like this unknown, like boogeyman. And then the second wave of volume that we've seen has been um, in two parts. It's been related to the virus itself. So words like mask and gown right from frontline people and then the impact of the quarantines and lockdowns. We've seen a 74% increase in domestic violence conversations you know, because as people are trapped at home with abusive people. It's hard to call a hotline right now. So we have seen that most of the phone hotlines in the United States have not been seeing an increase in domestic violence because you can't call because your abuser is sitting right there is in the next room. Whereas Crisis Text Line, we have seen a 74% increase in domestic violence-related conversations because you can text. It's like the baseline has just moved up. So everybody who had challenges before, if you had a, an alcohol issue before or a food issue before or an issue with money before and you were in a precarious place, all of that stuff is now exaggerated. All of that stuff is acute and it's so much harder now. For like, everybody is in that same situation, so it's just like the baseline has completely moved.
3: Some people, and this is something me and my friends have been discussing, you know, there's this idea that is this cure, as in lockdown, worse than the disease itself? And what are gonna be the, not only kind of health implications, but also kind of wider societal impact that that's gonna have? there are imminent threats that people are facing like domestic violence that to me are just as much of a threat as this kind of bigger disease. Um, And I think a lot of people are struggling to come to terms with that. And, you know, when is enough enough? And, you know, how long can this go on for?
1: Oh, gosh, it's a real question about um, preservation of individual versus preservation of the whole, isn't it? The idea of flattening the curve and everyone doing their part, sort of brought people together for that first week or two. And I we saw people talking a lot about what they were binge eating and what they were binge washing and different shows and things like that. And I think it sort of stopped being a fun experiment. And now we're seeing an increase in grief. So more people who know someone who've, who's passed away. So that has really set in the reality of it. And to others who don't know anyone who's passed away or who's become sick, I think they're frustrated and more concerned, you know, for themselves. So we have already seen it shift from anxiety to depression and isolation. And I think you're right. The question is, will this second wave of mental health issues, and we think there'll be a third wave, which is the impact of the economic crisis. And so will those things outlast the virus? I think so. I think you'll see grief, PTSD, depression, financial ruin, relationship issues, All of those things will far outlast. Look, eventually we will beat this virus. Eventually, right? Like we will, there will be mass testing. Eventually there'll be a vaccine. You know, I remain hopeful that physical things like that can be cured, if not dramatically curtailed. I am concerned that the mental health impacts are going to last far longer, spread far wider, and affect more people. That doesn't mean that I'm advocating for an end of the quarantines, however.
3: Obviously, there's a lot of negatives. But I guess on the kind of positive side, something I was kind of thinking, people often call, I think it's my generation, you call us the snowflake generation, like we're super, you know, hypersensitive, that like we need special practices all the time, we can't be taught properly at university. But I have this sense that we're going to be so resilient after this, whether you've suffered from mental health issues before, everyone is going to come out of this with a sense of, you know, being able to just simply have got through this kind of period of time. So do you think we might see kind of a shift with young people in that sense?
1: I love your optimism, cousin, but I can tell you that before the crisis, before this, the majority of our texters were under the age of 17. So it was a lot of teenagers and even younger than teenagers, under 13-year-olds, about 53% were texting us. And that since um, COVID nineteen, uh, our biggest age group is eighteen to thirty four.
3: Oh so, wow! So it's yeah, my generation, so
1: your generation. So you guys have really been the ones most displaced for eighteen to thirty four. This is hard. Either they're sheltering alone in a in a flat somewhere, and that's hard, or they're sheltering with roommates who they might have met online and were not really friends with, and now all of a sudden, you know, you're sheltering with the guy who all he wants to do is play Fortnite all day long or something, whatever. Or you've moved back home to your childhood bedroom when you were out there trying to do adulting and you were like making it in your, in the world. And now all of a sudden you're back home and you're being, told to help with the laundry and why are you wearing those socks with holes in them and don't you think you should get a haircut and by the way also for 18 to 34 year olds you were trying to date
3: oh my gosh yes that's me
1: this is it's really hard to be an 18 to 34 year old and also your careers have just been changed let's call it let's let's go with that so it's really hard so in that age group you also have Parents of young children. And like my, my kids are teenagers. They're literally just, as I just said, they're sleeping and playing video games and they're doing some schoolwork by Zoom. But little kids, all of a sudden, you are back to full-time, round-the-clock parenting without any help, without grandma to come in one day a week, without, you know, the crash or anything else helping out. It's just you. It's exhausting. So 18 to 34-year-olds are really, which is, again, doesn't help because you snowflakes always think that you're the centre of everything. But there you go. You really are right now, Absolutely. Olivia. You really are.
3: Well, and something, like, connected to that is, I guess, the use of digital and technology. And there's always been a lot of discussion around, you know, how is technology affecting our mental health. So do you think this actually might change how we view technology?
1: It's not the technology itself. It's not the phone's fault. It's how we choose to wield it. I think that's, you know, bearing fruit right now, because thank goodness for these phones. It's how we're keeping in touch with grandparents who we should not be visiting in person right now. You know, it's how we are getting food delivered, it's uh it's how we're getting our news cuz we're not really getting newspapers right now. I'm pretty grateful for my phone and I think it's at the end of the day all it is is a connection device and this is a moment for social connection. physical distance and social connection. But I'll also say that all of our household screen time rules are off. I mean just I'm like son, would you like to play some more video games? I mean just, you know, let's watch a movie, family. Let's watch a dub- let's watch two movies tonight.
3: You know, we talk about kind of different feelings of isolation and something that I think is coming out more in the news, especially recently, is people are starting to self-harm more and take kind of next steps. Obviously, crisis test line is there to prevent that. But are you kind of seeing any of that more on the rise in the last few weeks?
1: So the good news is we are not contrary to myth. We are not in the United States we are not seeing an increase in suicidal ideation. In fact, we're seeing a decrease in suicidal ideation. And we are seeing a decrease in what we call imminent risk conversations, where we might have to trigger an active rescue or wellness check, where in the U.S. we call 911 or there you would call 999. We're seeing a decrease in those conversations. Thank goodness. Typically, when people are at their wits end, when they're at the point where they think there's no point for me to go on, they're alone. And we're not seeing that right now. We're seeing people feel isolated, but we're seeing people connect. They are... Uh, sheltering with others Neighbours are checking on neighbours And I would encourage people to do that Like I said, get in touch with people who you haven't talked to in a long time Yeah,
3: we're definitely seeing the same in the UK There's this kind of wave of community on a local level You know, we've got a neighbour across the fence Who we never spoke to until this kind of started So there's def- you're definitely seeing that And I think what I find interesting about things like Crisis Text Line Is you rely massively on volunteers And we're seeing that across the board People, you know, here in the UK A lot of people are either or wanting to volunteer for our NHS.
1: People want to check in on each other and it's lovely.
3: Um, And I think, yeah, that empathy, I think that's something that everyone is feeling more and I wonder if it'll be something that kind of lasts beyond coronavirus.
1: I hope so. I mean, it's certainly the first time also that the whole world is experiencing something together and on the same side, right? Like it's not like a war where we were split and everybody experienced it, but in different ways. This one, we're all experiencing the same way. And so if I can find, yeah, I appreciate your silver lining. Like maybe it'll change us. Maybe it'll build resilience. It's certainly given us all a common experience. A lot of the rules from before are just out the window. I have a couple of friends who it looks to me from social media are working out every day, learning how to be like a French pastry chef while in quarantine and I I also just want to say to the listeners like it's okay not to be okay if you don't come out of this pandemic fluent in mandarin and being able to sew your own clothing I think you're still you're still winning like if we come out of this pandemic and you still have your family is intact and you have some old friends who you reconnected with. Like, that's what it means to win this pandemic. It's saying safe. It's keeping other people safe and flattening the curve. Um, it's really not a competition. We're seeing that people who are sheltering alone, and that's about 12% of people that we see in the U.S. are sheltering alone, are turning to yoga. And people who are sheltering with other people are turning to more walks. It's not known whether they're walking alone to escape or whether they're walking with the people they're sheltering with. The point is is that people are turning to different things and different things, and whatever um, works for you that I would say is healthy.
0: A lot of young people are struggling with this isolation, and you know they've also got the financial stresses, if you know they're paying student loans, worries about the future, of their careers.
2: In in fact, my experience with young people during the last few weeks and months has been quite intense because of the work that we've been doing with this schools project we have called Developing Emotions. So when the school closure happened, we were just coming towards the end of a six-week pilot of a series of lessons about emotions which were being tried out in eight primary schools around Kent and Sussex. So I had the experience of being in the classroom just before the school's closed witnessing these lessons that we designed for primary school kids about anger uh, and sadness and so on. So I hope that that maybe to a small degree, they might have met the crisis with a slightly expanded ability to think and talk about their feelings, which is the intention.
0: Will it help make people more mentally robust, for instance, because at at schools, but at both universities, we're we're continually told there's this kind of crisis of mental health.
2: Yes, And, And I'm really in the kind of beginnings of trying to make a contribution in this area. But one of my aims is to give young primary school age children an introduction to talking and thinking about feelings and emotions which is not couched in the language of mental health anxiety mm. depression and so on when they get to secondary school they won't be able to avoid that way of framing everything, but I'm wanting to give them an introduction to the idea that you can have strong feelings, and feelings that are quite difficult to describe and explain, and that everyone has that experience, and that it's useful to learn some vocabulary and some ideas to navigate that experience. So that that's kind of my aim with it, which is why we started with primary school children, that and the fact that I live with two primary school children, which is useful.
0: Just, just to bring us back to what we were discussing at the beginning, the YouGov data that the Overriding emotion at the moment is boredom, maybe coupled with frustration in some groups. But also, there is still this background anxiety. And of course, when I'm interacting with my students, particularly in this period, where they're all trying to finish up their end-of-year assignments, their big projects, so often students will say, I'm really stressed. And I always think that's an interesting word, because that can mean all sorts of different things. What I try and encourage them to do is, is see stress or anxiety as sometimes a good thing because uh, psychologically speaking, the polar opposite of that is boredom. And it seems to me I'm most content or happy when those two things are in balance. And for that to happen, there has to be some anxiety and stress because that's when you push yourself and you advance either creatively or intellectually. The ideal is to reach this kind of flow state, you know, in between boredom and anxiety.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the state that you describe, a kind of mixture of happiness and stress, that is, according to this YouGov mood measuring data, that is the default state of Britain over the last year and a half. Is 40% or 50% happy and 40% stressed. Yeah. So maybe there is a, a productive way to be. But, I mean, the language, I mean, historically, you know, other historians have written a lot about the history of stress. It's, it's, a, it's a very medical concept. It comes into its own in the middle of the 20th century. if you go to another of my favourite toys which is the google ngram viewer you can trace the uses of words over time and it shows a big peak for stressed in the 1960s 70s uh, and 80s so that's mm-hmm. when that way of talking first sort of became popular came into everyday language as a normal way to describe your emotions anxiety has a slightly longer history as you can imagine going back to the 19th century it's my job as a historian of emotions i guess to historicise and problematize these categories. And I think it can be liberating to try and get out of them. However, we've got to talk about our feelings some way and using some words. And so I don't want to come across as sort of saying, oh, you can't say stressed because that's too biomedical and you can't say anxious because that's too Freudian. You know, we've got to talk about our feelings somehow. And I find it interesting to know about the history, but equally it can be very pedantic and annoying to be always pointing out to people where their words come from.
0: But words do matter uh, and never more so in, in a crisis, I think. So um, as a medical historian, I'm often asked, particularly because I spent the last 10 years or so studying pandemics, what are the lessons from past pandemics? And I'm always very wary as a historian of, of saying that it's the job of historians to draw lessons or, you know, from history. I prefer to, to say, well, I can't tell you what lessons are, but I could write you a prescription for medical history, if you like. As a historian of the emotions, what Prescriptions would you write for the British public now that would be useful as they struggle with their emotions?
2: The formula that I've come up with, so it doesn't make it sound very good calling it a formula, but when thinking about these lessons for primary schools, and that was the context in which I had to think, well, why am I doing this? What, you know, what, what do I want children to get out of this? And the kind of motto I've come up with is that I want people to be able to move towards their own well informed version of emotional health and emotional well being. I don't have a recipe for well-being or a recipe for happiness, but I do think it's a good thing for young people to have a rich emotional vocabulary and to learn from our culture. And I think the best tools that we have for all of us, both children and adults, to deal with our emotions are stories, the arts, music. Culture. That's how we tap into the wisdom of past experience. That's how we tap into the frameworks through which we feel our feelings. And so I guess my advice would be, especially to parents, give your children as many movies and books as they want.
0: So, of course, your, your last book, Weeping Britannia, was all about kind of the history of the stiff upper lip. And we've heard a lot, haven't we, about comparing uh, the COVID crisis to war the invocation of the blitz spirit. But we're in a different time emotionally, right? The British Have the British changed? We're more exuberant emotionally than we were then.
2: Yes, I, I think what we're possibly experiencing now is, is a version of why people might come to be very suspicious of strong emotions, especially of strong emotions that seem to be self-indulgent. The 1940s and 1950s kind of ethos of stiff upper lip and restraint was about, to a larger extent, about not being selfish and not being self-indulgent. So possibly one thing that might come out of this is a version of that which is you know don't wallow in your own feelings you know you're not the one working on the front line as an NHS nurse or or whatever but yes we do live in very different times and we've learned over the last 50 or 60 years a whole different way of being which is much more focused on talking about and expressing our emotions and I wouldn't want to turn back the clock but I'm sure this current experience will have a massive impact on our emotions and on the way that we try to deal with them.
0: Thank you for listening to Going Viral The Covid Files. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to our series and recommend our podcast to your friends. Follow us on Twitter at goingviralpod and follow us on Instagram at goingviralthepodcast. Our producer is Melissa Fitzgerald. This has been The Covid Files.